The Start On Demand. On demand. Today is National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, and we had the pleasure and privilege of having a special guest co-host for an entire hour, Indigenous activist, community leader, Michael Redhead Champagne. We also heard from a residential school survivor, Loren McNabb, got to sit down with Elder Mary Courshane. We spoke to someone who walked a thousand kilometers from Fox Lake to Winnipeg to honor residential school survivors and we spoke to a Winnipegger who rode his bike to Kamloops and is set to ride it back to Ottawa also to honor residential school survivors. I'm Brett McGarry alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb and this is the Thursday, September 30th podcast for The Start. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, thank you very much for joining us this morning. We are indeed live. This is not a best of edition of The Start on this first ever National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. We are here live this morning, this afternoon, this evening on 680 CJOB, and we welcome you to a very special day. Good morning to you, Greg Mackling. Good morning, Brett. It's a pleasure. It's an honor to be here today. Loren, are you there? I'm here, and I'm so happy to be here. We have so many great stories and and people we want to hear from today. And by great, I mean some of them are really sad. Some of them are powerful. They're all inspirational. There are people doing really great things today to try to make sure we can all learn and grow and be better. And, man, on this day, it was six years ago that the Truth and Reconciliation called for a National Day of Reconciliation, a day to commemorate. And it took six years to get here from that moment when that report was released. And so I hope today can be um, maybe a place for a bit of healing, a place for learning, a place to ask questions. We certainly have many. And I'm pleased to be here. But all the orange shirts I saw yesterday picking up my kids from school, they, of course, are off today. And it was amazing to see. I don't think I've seen it like that in years past. I don't think there was a kid that walked by that did not have an orange shirt on. And it was a pretty powerful thing to see. And I hope we see more of that today. Yeah, I saw that in our neighborhood school when I was driving home yesterday. And then, of course, uh, when I went to go pick up uh, one of my boys from their school, there's a elementary and junior high school right next door. And it was absolutely overwhelming. It's like that swell of pride that... That comes over you if you're a sports fan when you when you head to a, a large gathering, whether it's at uh, IG Field or at uh, Canada Life Center for a Jets game. Now you know uh, it's like you're all on the same team. You have the same sort of focus, and so that is a, a tremendously powerful image. It's simple in terms of what you can do, but it has a, a, a very uh, galvanizing feel to it, Brett. After 9 o'clock, we have a special co-host, a guest host, Michael Redhead Champagne, is going to join us from 9 until 10. So we are excited to have him join us for such an extended period of time. Uh, We also have many more stories to tell this morning. For example, at 7 o'clock, Loren walking 1,000 kilometers to honor residential school survivors. That ends today at the legislature? Yeah, so they've come uh, from a thousand kilometers north near Gillum. This is Fox Lake First Nation. A group of them walking. Uh, they've been walking for a 
several days now. They got into Winnipeg last night. Of course, they're getting some much-needed rest, but uh, one of the counselors and residential school survivors who was on the walk will join us at 7 to share a bit about that journey because uh, when they're all eventually up again this morning, they will take the final kilometres from where they're spending the night to the legislature. A pretty powerful statement they're trying to make on behalf of residential school survivors, and I know that they have lots of things that they want to say and share with us, so we'll bring that to our listeners just after 7. We do also have... Oh, but you know what? Before we, uh, I mention this, I do want to mention the question of the day at cjob.com is brought to you by Credit Aid, helping Manitobans get out of debt since 1992. Visit creditaid.ca, call 204-987-6890. What does Canada's first ever National Day for Truth and Reconciliation mean to you? A chance to learn, a chance to listen, a chance to share my story, or all of the above. You can cast your vote at cjob.com. We do also have a couple of other things on the go this morning. We still have Backyard Bullseye with Winnipeg Vinyl Fencing. We have Judy still sitting on the fence. We're going to do that today at 7.50. We've been doing it mostly at 8.50, but yesterday was 7.50. It'll be at 7.50 as well today. And we have Fred Penner tickets to give away for the show on December 12th. We have Billy Talent tickets to give away uh, for the show on February 7th. And then at 6.45, we are going to talk about the movies, shows, books, that perhaps had the biggest impact on us, uh, the stuff that we learned the most from, uh, because, you know, we were thinking about this. At, I I can't speak for you both, but when I think about this stuff that I read, read some great books in school, but in terms of Indigenous history, nothing. Greg's shaking his head. I can see him in the monitor. Yeah, I'm agreeing with you because uh, I was in the same boat. I can think about uh, creating in, I guess it was grade five, the Port Royal Times and the, and uh, going back to 1670 or 1760. <laughs> you know, my 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 uh, history recollection on that front isn't terrific, but I do remember creating this newspaper about, you know, uh, the life and times inside uh, the Port Royal in in what is now Nova Scotia, and so uh, the education that we got mostly, I can remember living in Brandon, and our big road trip, our big field trip, was coming to Lower Fort Gary. I love going to Lower Fort Gary. We did that in grade four. It was a very long day. But of course, that was all from the view of the Hudson's Pay Company, from the you know from the settlers in this part of the world, and the view of First Nations was very limited, and the education that we got on that front was very limited as well. I can remember maybe two or three days in grade six about that. Loren, yeah, I don't have much, and I have to say that you know the older I get, and the more I read and see and watch, the more amazed I am at how how little I knew years ago we talk about this often amongst our friends and in our circles about how we how it really just wasn't what we were taught in history classes and what a shame that is and I think of the things that the kids are learning today the way they are commemorating orange shirt day with their shirts and their lessons yesterday and land acknowledgements in schools and how far they've come but still all the ways we have to go to learn so much more today is part of that stay with us Mackling McGarry and McNabb Thank you very much for joining us on this first ever National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. Heads up in case you are just tuning in. Very special guest co-host from 9 until 10 a.m. Community 
leader, indigenous activist Michael Redhead Champagne will join us for the entire hour. And that hour includes, Greg, a conversation I'm looking forward to at 9.35. Who are we talking to there? A young man by the name of Liam Haim. He is a Métis uh, individual. He's been riding his bike. He began riding his bike from Winnipeg to British Columbia, September 7th, the first day of school. Why is that important? Because Liam is now a teacher. He's concluded his education degree. He finds that and thinks that it's important that truth and reconciliation be a big part of our education system moving forward. So that's why he's riding 7,000 kilometers from Winnipeg to BC and then all the way back to Ottawa. We'll catch up with Liam in a in an important place today, Kamloops, British Columbia. And a little bit earlier in the show, Loren, at 8.37, you had the opportunity to speak with a residential school survivor. Yeah, really the privilege to speak with Elder Mary Kershane, and I can't wait to share some of her thoughts as we embark on this important day. And it kind of ties into what we're talking about now, Brett, because she's somebody who had to work to bring back her language and to reclaim her culture after years in a residential school. And she has this incredible story that she's going to share at 837 about the moment where she actually looked at her own father and wished he would stop speaking Ojibwe, wished he asked him to only speak English in the house because that's what the school system taught her to, to turn her back on her identity and her culture. And she's worked so hard to bring it back and share it to with the, re- with the rest of us in society and with her family. And so it kind of ties into what we're talking about now. This first ever National Day for Truth and Reconciliation was born out of a call to action listed in the 2015 Truth and Reconciliation Commission report. Yeah, and that same year as so the Prime Minister... Justin Trudeau, he actually promised to act on all 94 calls to action. There's different watchdog groups that are monitoring this. Some have been acted on, a few dozen. Others remain incomplete or are listed in progress, Greg, but we still have a long way to go to hit many of these. Oh, no kidding. And when you mention the fact that it's six years before we got this day, this Truth and Reconciliation Day recognized, I'm thinking, looking at that list of 94, it's actually pretty quick based on the inaction on so many on that list. Now, you're going to be hearing about several of uh, these uh, stories today and these calls to action, including the push to preserve Indigenous languages. Just this year, Canada appointed its first ever commissioner of Indigenous languages. And closer to home, a Winnipeg organization is doing what it can to make sure Indigenous languages don't disappear. Here's Global's Marnie Blunt with more. A small excerpt of a book in Ojibwe, part of something bigger. An initiative ensuring Indigenous languages are not lost through generations. If we lose our Indigenous languages, it is said that then the voices of the land will be lost. And I really believe that. For Grace Shedler, growing up in a northern fly-in Cree nation allowed her to be connected to her language, culture and identity. I myself was lucky to be raised in the language and in the culture. And when you are raised in the language and the culture, it kind of paves the way that you that you grow right you it guides you as you get older on how how you live now Schindler is helping ensure other indigenous people have the opportunity to be fluent in their mother tongue through the non-profit organization indigenous languages of manitoba it's important for um you know people to understand that they have a right to learn 
about their language and culture. Preservation of languages is waning over the years due to the impact of residential schools, colonialism and intergenerational trauma. I'm very passionate about our Indigenous language and culture. Um, I'm Anishinaabe from Saiging, Nindonji. Um, and especially with everything going on right now with residential schools and stuff, like it's important that we learn this language because our ancestors couldn't. The organization provides a range of programming, preserving and teaching the languages of Cree, Ojibwe, Ojibwe Cree, Dene, Dakota, Michif, and Inuit. Really just provide uh, opportunities to develop speakers because um, there aren't uh, many left in the larger scheme of things and we really need to develop speakers before um, we lose um, our elders who are there to to guide us through that. Five Nanin. Guiding future generations. I know that I need to make sure that I, I do everything I can to keep our languages alive and going. To stay connected to their roots and to this land. Marnie Blunt, Global News. There's actually, I was just looking this up, guys, there's 70 languages, uh, Indigenous Aboriginal languages that were reported in the census. So 70 different uh, languages out there that, that many communities are hoping that they don't lose. And we all know this. I mean, when you grow up learning a language, if you, if you don't speak it, if you don't hear it, you lose it, right? And so I can only imagine that that might be the fear in many communities. We don't want to lose what we fought so hard to try to get back after residential schools tried to take that away. And I can't help but think... You know, folklorama is something that we hold up is so dear and near to our heart. Uh, this celebration, this now two-week-long celebration, 50 years, we've been gathering. People have been coming from far and wide to celebrate what? Culture, language, food. It's something that's important to us. And to imagine having decades-long gaps in that history, that sense of who you are, that ability to celebrate it, I, I, I would... Ask our listeners to think about that this morning. What if all of a sudden Folklorama was illegal for the next 50 years? How would we feel about that? And you look at the popularity of websites like Ancestry.ca and that ability, that desire, that need, that want to know where we come from. What if that trail is, is dry? What if there's no information on that? That connection to who we are, where we come from is so important to so many of us. And I think we need to recognize that for tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Canadians, that right has been denied. In fact, it was more than denied. It was, it was purposefully uh, snuffed out. The, the intention was to eliminate it from history. That's a fantastic point. Imagine if you didn't have the right to do that, to celebrate like that. That's what happened. So... Oh, that's heavy, and that's an, uh, you really hit the nail on the head there, Gray. So we'll have much more on this throughout the day. And again, Elder Mary Cruchane at 837 will share how she almost lost her language and how grateful she is to her dad for pushing back. And before we have a look at your forecast, I see, Greg, that uh, you have highlighted one of the texts that we've received this morning. Yes, and it just goes to, I think, what this day is about in terms of, if you're if you're non-Indigenous, what is this day supposed to mean? And one of our listeners says, it's nice, in quotation marks, I think there's a little sarcasm there, that the federal government is recognizing the First Nation issues. But besides the obvious, it makes me wonder, of all the years gone by, how many government officials knew about the grave sites? What's even more disturbing, no criminal charges have been laid. And and I think that's, it's inherent upon us to think about those things today and to wonder out loud about those questions, ask them and demand answers.
Question of the day at cjob.com. For credit aid, helping Manitobans get out of debt since 1992, visit creditaid.ca, call 204-987-6890. What does Canada's first ever National Day for Truth and Reconciliation mean to you? A chance to learn, a chance to listen, a chance to share my story, or all of the above. Cast your vote at cjob.com. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb on this National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. Normally, in this segment, we like to goof off and have fun. And that was a conscious decision that we made back in March of 2020 when uh, the pandemic first hit and we, we were all overwhelmed with the avalanche of headlines and information that was just throwing the entire world off its axis. And we thought, this is going to be our fun zone. And uh, that doesn't really fit today. But we do want to have an important conversation uh, about the things that we learned from stuff like movies, TV shows, books about history. And Greg, uh, you made a a pretty passionate point about something that, uh, well, LeVar, is it it Lamar or LeVar Burton? I think of him as the host of Reading Rainbow. Yeah, LeVar Burton. And for me, LeVar Burton is Kunta Kinte from the Roots miniseries, which aired back in 1977, eight parts. Uh, My mother and father made sure we watched every single minute of every single episode. And it was as powerful a moment and moments in television history as there have ever been. And it just gave me such a critical insight into that part of American history, of the history of the world, and and to what um, African Americans, what uh, what Black people in America all around the world have had to deal with uh, throughout history, and so it's given me that insight that has really helped me form my world view. And I think Loren, in this time, media gets a hard time about our role in helping shape that world view. And I just wanted to try and bring it into something really positive, as difficult as those programs were. Boy, oh boy, the impact and the ability to connect us with history and to bring it to life uh, to this day is awe-inspiring. Yeah, think about how many times, and I know I do this probably weekly, you'll watch a show or you'll put a movie on from whatever streaming device or cable or whatever, and then halfway through it, you think to yourself, it said it was based on a true story. Is this true? Mm-hmm. And you start doing Googling and you go down that hole and you think, oh my gosh, this is this is what went on. I, I've had that moment so many times over the past few years, and you feel both enlightened and really stupid sometimes that you didn't know certain events that were going on right around you. So I think this is a great topic. We've all, I think we've all, every day, I think it's safe to say one of us might get off air and think, huh, I just learned something new again today. Well, that that happened to me just uh, earlier this year when I was uh, binging The Crown, when I learned of that coal mining tragedy uh, that they did such a nice job at portraying on that show. But I had no idea that was a thing. Uh, I watched and I thought, oh my gosh, I, I got to do some reading on this particular, the true story of the Aberfan uh, disaster. It was just horrific. Um, Jeff Braun, let's go to you. Yeah, for me, uh, my pick is Band of Brothers. It was an HBO miniseries in 2001. It followed a company of U.S. paratroopers from 
D-Day through to the end of World War II. And besides the gruesome reality of the violence, it really for the first time, you know, portrayed the scope of the war for these veterans. Uh, like in a late episode, one soldier mentions how he hasn't been home in two years. So you really got a better understanding of the mental, physical, and emotional toll that the war took on these guys. And it also, you know, helped you understand why they couldn't and wouldn't talk about it when they get home. And it just really made you look at these old veterans in a different light. So if, if you've not seen it, it is on Crave. And uh, for my money, it's the best thing that's ever been on TV. So I would highly, highly recommend Band of Brothers. You And of the two of us as the couch potatoes, Jeff, uh, you are easily the uh, the the expert on, on war television shows, on, on war films. Uh, I know there was that one year, for example, Clint Eastwood did back-to-back movies on Iwo Jima from the American perspective and the Japanese perspective but you're always one of the first guys i know to to head out and watch uh these war movies what is it about those types of movies that draws you to them oh it's just i mean world war ii still and until every one of those people passes along is by far like the most significant single event in the history of you know modern history so it's just i just find it endlessly interesting um there's you know, like in TV and movies, there's, you know, you can do a love story about anything. You can do a hundred thousand different love stories and not really repeat yourself. And I find the same goes for World War II. There are just so many stories out of World War II that uh, when you find a good one, it really makes a difference. Good point. Good point. For me, when I think of uh, books that uh, I read in school, there are two that jump to mind. One of them is In the Heat of the Night. I read that, uh, I want to say grade nine, maybe. Um 1967 film, we watched the film as well. The book came out in 65, tells the story of Virgil Tibbs, a black police detective from Philadelphia who gets involved in a murder investigation in a small town in Mississippi. And uh, Sidney Poitier uh, won, uh, did he win an Oscar for that, Greg? Yep, yep, absolutely he did. I'm just looking up their uh, their Wikipedia page here. Yeah, and the film won five Academy Awards, including the 1967 Award for Best Picture and Rod Steiger for uh, Best Actor. So that was a great book. And the other one was uh, called Underground to Canada. Lorena, have you ever heard of that? Because we... Yeah. You know, did you read that in school? No, but I... Well, sorry, yes, but it wasn't until you mentioned it again this morning that I had even had any recall of it so it's actually something i'm actually looking at a list of high school books that were pretty great even 20 years ago that we should go back and i'll read again yeah this was uh i think i read this one in grade seven or grade eight i remember uh picking it up at the the transcona library i think i don't know why i had to get it there or maybe i was just reading it there uh but yeah this was uh published in 1977 uh for the following year as it was published in the States the following year as Runaway to Freedom, a story of the Underground Railway, and it's based partially on a true story set in the U.S. and Canada in the years leading up to the American Civil War and depicts the hard lives of slaves in the American South and the people who helped them escape to Canada. And uh, it's studied in many Canadian schools. And I remember reading these books and feeling, you know, it, I felt angry for what uh, happened. And as I think about that, I just, I wish that I had read something similar about our own indigenous history in this country uh, because, Greg, you pointed to something about black history and these both of these books that I'm reading are about uh, black uh, issues uh, and I wish that I could have had that for indigenous issues as well. So I'm glad today, Loren, that we have this day to get these kinds of conversations started so that this history uh, is never lost. 
Yeah. And that actually brings me to one of the books I'm reading right now, which is Black Water by David Robertson. And of course, he's a, a, a well-acclaimed author here in Winnipeg um, who grew up with an Indigenous father and a non-Indigenous mother. And, and has, this book is about going on a journey with his father, a, a memoir, really. And he's going to be joining, actually, I think Jim Toth later today just to talk about. He's got a whole list of books, not just his, but of books right across this country that we should be reading to our kids or ourselves to try to learn anymore. And uh, I'm about a third of the way through it and I keep I keep having to say yep nope that's a great point like I, I, I wish I had thought of this one is about the fact that when you look at reclaiming uh, culture and language and identity your teachers increasingly need to also be represented in that group and how many indigenous educators are out there to make sure that the kids see representation in the classroom and so every, every other page I want to pull out my highlighter and be like Damn, David, you just taught me something again. <laughs> and if I may, really quick, Sydney Port, I was so positive about the answer to your question. Brett, Sydney Poitche won for Lilies of the Field in 1963. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. It is Thursday, so at 7:37 for our small town salute, we are going to focus on Indigenous tourism. But right now, we want to talk about how two weeks ago, a group from Fox Lake Cree Nation set out on a 1,000-kilometer journey. Yeah, not by car or by plane. This is a journey that was done on foot, Brett. They walked south to Winnipeg in honor of the first ever National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. And along the way, they were actually joined by walkers from Tatasquayak Cree Nation and York Factory First Nation. Last night, they arrived in Winnipeg. And this morning, they will finish that final leg by walking to the Manitoba Legislature. We're very pleased now to be joined by Councillor Sophie Lockhart. Uh, she's the woman behind this walk from Fox Lake Cree Nation and also a residential school survivor. Good morning, Councillor. Uh, good morning. We have you up early this morning after a long journey, so I, I just want to know how you're feeling on this first ever day for truth and reconciliation. Can you share a bit about what's going through your mind this morning? Okay. Uh, uh, we started in September 18th from Gillum. Um York Landing joined us past uh, Long Spruce, and then we started walking. And along the way, we were joined by uh, TCN and some other students, about 80 students from St. Laurent, um, from the school. And we got here Monday. We couldn't really walk right into uh, Winnipeg because of the construction. And uh, this morning we're going to be continuing our walk from the Victoria Inn to uh, to the ledge with some whole bunch of uh, residential school survivors from from here and some other people that are going to be joining. So, how are you feeling this morning, Sophie? As you as you reflect on on your walk, I know that a, a long road trip uh, with a, a friend or family member, you get lots of conversations, you, you learn lots about one another. Can you share some of the conversations you might have had along the way during your walk, The maybe the laughs uh, and, and some of the connections you made? Okay, along the, along the way, I we started walking in pairs because something happened along the, along the way there. And uh, we we talk we talk about stuff that you know that that happened in residential school, and um, I walked with a young man from York York Landing, and 
we talked about like how how it was in residential school. Like he's a intergenerational. His his mom went to residential school, and along the way too is uh, you know we we made friends and there is laughter, you know healing and all that for for the young people. And what are you, in terms of what we should be thinking about today, what do you want and hope Manitobans will think about today? I know there is a lot of, uh, this walk was to bring awareness <clears throat> to the people about residential school and, you know, to listen to the survivors' stories because I know a lot of them didn't uh, didn't know what really happened behind, you know, behind closed doors in residential school. All they all they knew was you know and, uh, all the <clears throat> little kids are going to school to learn and but you know there was a lot of there was a little bit of learning but there was a lot of abuse too like uh, for me I I went through a lot of abuse but today I'm uh, I'm standing proud you know to be a Cree Cree woman and have three children. And I still learn, I still know my language. I talk to the elders and, you know, I translate for them. I've never lost my language. That's one thing they didn't take away from me. I fought hard to keep it. I'm so pleased to hear that. Have you been able to share that with your kids as well, Sophie? Are they speaking it or are you trying to pass that on to other generations to make sure it stays alive? Well, I, I tried and, you know, there's, uh, there's a lot of... Um, parents out there that uh that that didn't really uh speak Cree to their children but today i'm really proud that i i was kind of feeling down because my my three children i didn't think they were going to make it here but they came here and i'm really i'm really proud that they're here and you know giving me support and um they're going to walk yeah, with you the final leg, Sophie, to the legislature? Yes. Yes, oh. they are. Yeah, so, and I'm really happy that they're here. You can hear that in your voice, Sophie. Thank mm-hmm. you so yeah. much for, for joining us this morning and, and hope it's a, an absolutely uh, wonderful day on so many levels, introspective. But but there is some celebration here, isn't there? Yes, there is. Uh, you know, for it's finally come to this like uh, we're being recognized like today is September 30th and most I believe all schools will be closed and some businesses and it's nice to know that like uh, finally the government finally uh, recognized uh, us. So you're going to be leaving the Victoria Inn today at 10 a.m. to complete the final leg. What time are you expecting to arrive at the Manitoba Legislature? Uh, hopefully by uh, 11.30, because along the way, too, I, I stepped on a, uh, a little stone and kind of oh. twisted my foot. And it mm. was swollen and, and bruised up, but, you know, I I rested up and I'm ready to go again. I cannot give up because, you know, I we initiated this walk from Fox Lake because of the two, 215 unmarked graves that were found. So that's the reason why, and... Uh, and uh, we need a lot of support services up north too, like where we are. It seems like the north is always forgotten about, you know. And and then we need funding, 
And we're trying to see if we can get a, a treatment center going for everybody uh, surrounding communities up north. That's what I'm. That's what we're hoping to get out of this walk to. Fox Lake Cree Nation Councillor Sophie Lockhart joining us live on 680 CJOB after a 1,000 kilometer journey to Winnipeg, which wraps up today around 11:30 at the legislature. Sophie, thank you very much. We appreciate this. Thank you. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, we're asking you today to tell us about the stuff from movies, TV shows, books, from a historical historical perspective that taught you the most or that had a significant impact on you. And we do have uh, Fred Penner tickets to give away. We heard the Fred Penner spot uh, a couple of moments ago for December 12th. So uh, just before 9 o'clock, we will hand out those tickets based on your text messages. Crystal, for example, weighing in with the diary of Anne Frank. I first saw it when I was young and had a lot of questions about why people were treated different because of who they were. Very disturbing and enlightening Mm -hmm. at the same time. There's a book I read a few years ago. I think it's called Boy in the Straight Pajamas. And it's actually, I think, more for middle school, high school kids. And it centers around concentration camps. And in theory, fictional, right, in terms of the characters in it. But it is so... I think of that book probably once a month easily because of, of the impact it had on me, like the words that can stick with you sometimes. And, the, and like the very real sadness, Greg, when you realize that things aren't fictional, you know, when, when it actually happened in our lifetimes or in your parents' lifetime is where it just your jaw can drop. Some of these things are actually unimaginable. Mm-hmm. The things that happened in human history, you look back on them and it's like, how was this even contemplated? Never mind enacted upon. And it's it, it's startling. And uh, Brett, I think you made a terrific point. Uh, so many of the, uh, there are so many opportunities, uh, movie-wise, book-wise, to marry the internet with those experiences and to do more research and uh, just the resources that we didn't have when, when we were kids in order to, to really to find out more and to get different perspectives and to, to find other resources on these things is absolutely, it's, it's a magical time uh, from that standpoint. And, and Kristen sort of ties it all together with her text about Star Trek. <laughs> and she says, this may get me judged, but you know what? I've heard a lot of people say that their worldview yeah. is is formed by their love affair with Star Trek. From childhood, it has taught me everything that matters, even the cheese fest that is the original <laughs> series. It taught me about diversity and inclusion, to analyze a situation using both logic and emotion, to never stop learning. Your friends are the family that you choose most important of all, it taught me that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. And she adds, the whales are super cool. And uh, she says they there was also a groundbreaking interracial yeah. kiss between Kirk and Uhura. The fact that Shatner deliberately sabotaged the alternative takes so they couldn't cut the kiss has cemented him to being a decent guy. Deep down, at least, adds Kristen. He's going to space, by the way. Yeah. Well, he should. A, Don't you think he should? Yeah. Of all, of all the Hollywood actors, I feel like Shatner needs to get to space. <laughs> is he going all at one time? <laughs> or is he going there in steps? <laughs> He's going- I have to say, I don't I don't think I've watched a ton of Star Trek. You guys? Uh, 
you know what? I prob- I've probably seen every episode okay. like when, from when I was a kid, but I don't remember. It was just always on. Uh, but in terms <laughs> that's, of- that's why I feel like I watched it. Like if nothing else, you turn it on, you're like, well, this is on. Yeah. Two choices, Gilligan's <laughs> Island or Star Trek. <laughs> Star Trek. <laughs> I picked Gil- Gilligan's Island every time. Uh, so feel free to weigh in on the books, the shows, the movies that had a significant impact on you. And it doesn't have to be from when you were going to school. Like It could be something you watched last week or read last week. And uh, we'll give away those Fred Penner tickets a bit later on. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, thank you very much for joining us on The Start, coming up after Global News at 8 o'clock. Loren, is Abigail Turner going to join us? Abigail is joining us. You just heard her a bit in the news run with Jeff Braun talking about the different events and walks and healing circles and all the rest that are taking place right across the city and province for our first ever National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. There's so many things we can take part in. She's going to share a bit about what we can do, where we can go, and how we can all participate. And Greg, who is our special guest co-host after 9 o'clock? Well, when I first met him almost 11 years ago, he was just North End MC, Michael Champagne. He's a wonderful community activist. He's a leader in his neighborhood, in his community, in this province. Michael Champagne will join us from 9 to 10. I'm a huge fan of this young man and and the energy that he brings to everything that he does. So I can't wait to uh, share the airwaves with him. For an extended period of time, he, of course, visits with us on a semi-regular basis here on The Start. Normally on Thursdays at 7.37, we take a spin outside of the perimeter to speak with someone from a community outside of Winnipeg for our Small Town Salute. And we're really still doing that today, Brett, but we're going to put the spotlight on many communities, many Indigenous communities and businesses that are really looking to share and grow and expand with their culture, language, and food. Keith Henry is president and CEO of the Indigenous Tourism Association of Canada and joins us now from British Columbia. Keith, good morning. Boy, oh boy, you're up early. Thank you for this. Yeah, no, happy to be on the show today. Thanks for having me. Oh, our pleasure entirely. So uh, this is such an important day. So let's start with uh, orange shirts uh, worn in honor of residential school survivors on this September 30th and every year. How can we make sure we're buying authentic, uh, something that will that will benefit uh, the cause, the local economy, etc.? Well, I mean, it's difficult because it's obviously always uh, not clear where to find those Indigenous businesses and suppliers. I would just say really do a little investigation. I mean, it's a very important issue. It happens to us in Indigenous art all the time in this country. It has for many years as we've been developing Indigenous tourism. A big sector within our development of our businesses has been the you know, misappropriation of different art and prints and designs by non-Indigenous businesses. And it, it happens. It happens in this country. It's happened for a long time. What I would just say is that we really hope people will dig a little deeper, buy their, their orange shirts off Indigenous artists, Indigenous suppliers, and, and do some digging around, make sure that the benefits are leaving are staying with the local Indigenous people, whether they're First Nation or Métis or Inuit or whatever particular business that, it, that it's coming from. It's a very important issue for us. In Winnipeg alone, there are so many great Indigenous-owned businesses and restaurants. What's the growth been like in this sector? Well, you know, pre-COVID, it was tremendously tremendously strong and uh, we were seeing a lot of development in Manitoba we've been working with 
helping get it organized as a sector for some time now. The Manitoba Indigenous Tourism Association is getting off the ground now thanks to the work of ITAC and Travel Manitoba and the government of Manitoba. So there's been a lot of growth. We've got some great businesses, right? You know, there's Feast Cafe Bistro. You know, it's one of our nation's best restaurants right there in Winnipeg, right downtown. Many people, if they've never been there, they really just need to do a little exploration and go have a meal there. You know, Krista and her staff there are amazing. You know, you got Tika's Boutique right at the Forks, an Indigenous, you know, art uh, or gift shops style. We do mukluks and moccasins and probably have some orange T-shirts there. I mean, Tika's Boutique is, you know, it's a, a, a bit of a more of an iconic business, been around for a while there. Uh, and, you know, you have many other sort of things that have happened around Winnipeg on, on a regular basis. So it's continuing to help people know where to find these businesses is our biggest challenge. When you talk about Indigenous tourism, Keith, what does that look like? Are we are we looking at, you know, of course we could go to restaurants, we can um, support businesses, but what about what might be happening in some of the communities as a, a destination? If I want to take a trip and go somewhere and maybe also learn a little more about history or culture, what are some examples of where this is really working for you? Well, you know, we, we are working as an industry to really help create that destination development, as you call it, where, you know, you go to some of the nations, they have the right transportation infrastructure, they have hotels, they've got the accommodation, the food services, and they've got the experiences and activities lined up. And I think we're trying to plant that seed amongst all residents in Manitoba and all Canadians. And and a lot of people don't realize you can do that. They often think of our businesses, well, we'll stop there. It's a quick visit to, you know, a cultural center or a museum or, but there's so much more breadth and depth of that. You know, I think of Wendaki in Quebec, you know, that, that particular community, that nation has developed so many businesses where they've got, a, you know, like a four and a half star hotel. They have a, a longhouse cultural set, like cultural apparatus you can stay in overnight if you choose to purchase that experience. They have, a, you know, a world-class restaurant there. They've got gift shops. They've got all sort of guided walking tours. Like a family can literally go there and spend, you know, three, four days and, and really find it full of activities and fun. So we're trying, and, and along the way, people are getting culturally educated. And that's, like, today's very important because it, it starts with education. It starts with learning together. And that's, and it's when we develop these destinations. And we're doing a lot more thinking on how we're going to do that in Manitoba with our friends at Manitoba Indigenous Tourism Association. How do we raise up those businesses in Manitoba so that everyone in Manitoba locally also wants to visit because they're amazing experiences. Keith Henry is president and CEO of the Indigenous Tourism Association of Canada, joining us in our small town salute segment here on The Start. And Keith, uh, I've been fortunate enough to, to do some traveling in particular over the last three or four years. And living like a local has become such a huge uh, a, a huge priority, shall we say, for individuals that are traveling. They don't want to necessarily go to uh, all the famous places. They want to go to the secret places. Could this be like sort of the, the secret weapon, so to speak, of Indigenous tourism? Uh, I, I, I absolutely believe we will be. I think we're the secret sauce for the entire tourism industry in this country to, you know, Canada's got amazing locations. You know, Manitoba, you have amazing outdoor adventure naturally, whether it's fishing or just, you know, just outdoor wildlife viewing or all these great things. But the world and other Canadians, as we rebuild tourism, want something different. They want something unique. They want something off the beaten path. And I think COVID is also, will put that in the consciousness of many consumers into the future about 
maybe we need to slow down and, and maybe indigenous values. And we're seeing that in some of the, the research we've been doing. And I think off the beaten path is exactly what a lot of our businesses have. You know, I think of up at Churchill, Wapusk Adventures, you know, uh, dog sledding. And, and people that don't think about that and then they go experience it. And it's, and it's a once-in-a-lifetime experience for them because they've just never lived culturally that way, right? And so, and it's fun and, and they're learning. And, and that's exactly what Indigenous tourism is for all of tourism in Manitoba and I would argue all of tourism in Canada. Well, we've been talking about this for years, Keith, the idea that so many of us look at uh, vacations like we need to leave, that we need to get out and, and go to the Jaspers or go to the States or go to Europe if you can afford it. And there's all these things like that are just hours away from us that we maybe need to turn the spotlight on. You have beautiful lodges right in Manitoba that are Indigenous owned and operated. And I think people, we, we can need to encourage everyone in Manitoba to just look in their backyard, you know, because we have that across the country, you know. Ontario residents want to leave the country. They want to go here. They want to go there. Same with you know, Alberta. Same. A lot of people like to spend, like Canada's a great country for people to leave and go spend more money somewhere else. But the fact is we've got world-class Indigenous tourism businesses right in our backyard that's from high-end to, you know, more rustic to whatever you want. And I think getting people aware of platforms like Destination Indigenous, which is our, our national platform, we can go see hundreds of these businesses all across the country right in your backyard is really what we want people to do. Indigenous cuisine. Um, can you give us some examples? Like, if I wanted to, if I wanted to explore that, where should I start? Well, have you been the Feast Cafe Bistro? Because if not, you have a great one right there in Winnipeg. I mean, that's truly one of our finest Indigenous culinary uh, restaurants in the country, and it's a it's really a smaller sort of uh, boutique style restaurant, uh, but. The food is amazing. I've eaten there many times. Uh, we've promoted it to the world. You know, we have ma- many tour groups that want to eat there. And it's uh, Indigenous culinary opportunities are one of our highest demanded ones. We've got even here in Vancouver, you know, Salmon and Bannock in British Columbia is, you know, often in the top restaurants in all of Vancouver. And it's this boutique-style, amazing culinary experience. And it's local Indigenous ingredients. They, they you know, they fuse that with a lot of different dishes. And I think people just need to come explore. And it's really, truly, it's really the true history of this country. And I think that's what we really want people to step outside of their 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 ongoing habits and just explore new opportunities. And I really, I would encourage everyone, if they haven't been to Feast, like today's a start, orange, wear your orange t-shirts, you know, go to some of the nation-held events, you know, support the cultural developments, support that historical awareness. But make a commitment the rest of the year. Don't just go one day. We want you to spend, you know, uh, other time to just come out and have fun and enjoy and learn together. And what better way to to connect with people than having food, breaking bread, breaking bannock, sharing salmon, whatever it might be. Uh, you know, this is these are the things we bring home from our our vacation adventures, right, Keith? Uh, it's not only where you've been, what you've seen, what you've done. It's the people that you connect with. And in my mind, that's what it's all about at the end of the day. It is, you know, we, 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 we often, you know, any vacation, if anyone thought of that, that picture in their mind or that movie they've created about the ideal trip, yeah, you think about great food, great company, lots of, you know, you know fun, just good times. And you probably, especially in places like Destiny, Mexico or other, you know, sort of traditional places that people often think about for hot, sunny holidays and cultural experiences, Often it's not Canada in their backyard, and I think we have to help people create that they can have that same experience here, and we have that. You know, and that's what I love about Feast, right? And I don't mean to just keep 
pushing them, but the truth is they are an amazing restaurant and you break bread there and you're like, wow, there's like, it's different here. This is community. This is family. And, and the food is amazing. And wow. Okay. Well, that's a start. I'll do that today. And you know, maybe I'll check this destination indigenous.ca website and I'm going to, Oh, I noticed there's some other local, uh, you know, there's a, some other cultural center opportunities. And you know, in the Métis community, there's purchased a new cultural center they're going to be developing. And like, there's all these new businesses being created for the future. Keith Henry, President and CEO of the Indigenous Tourism Association of Canada, thank you very much for joining us. This has been great. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much. It is 7.47 on 680 CJOB. As I look at the menu for this Feast oh. Cafe Bistro, the Manitoban Poutine. Yes, I, I'm on there now. Bannock Pizza. Yep. I haven't been here in a while. When they first opened, they um, yeah, I, we got to get there. That's where we're doing our next team lunch. I'm <laughs> sure we've had Krista on our program. Yes, yeah, we've we've talked to them before, and you guys, I think, have in the past before I butt, butted heads, pushed my way in. <laughs> but, yeah. Okay, so now we're now we're hungry. That's usually yeah, what happens uh, during this segment. <laughs> Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, thank you very much for joining us on this first ever. National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. And that's our question of the day at cjob.com for credit aid, helping Manitobans get out of debt since 1992. Visit creditaid.ca, call 204-987-6890. What does Canada's first ever National Day for Truth and Reconciliation mean to you? A chance to learn, a chance to listen, a chance to share my story, or all of the above? So far, we got 52% say a chance to learn. 28% all of the above, 16% a chance to listen, 4% a chance to share my story. Cast your vote at cjob.com. Greg, curious what you're feeling today as as you listen to that question of the day. You know, I've been pondering it uh, because I knew you were going to ask me. I would say, you know, we're fortunate enough to be in this situation where we're facilitating many of the conversations today. And so that's an honor. But ultimately... It is about listening for me because, uh, well, first and foremost, I cannot wait to hear what you've put together for us in this next segment. Uh, That comes from my heart, Loren. Well, earlier this week, I had the chance to visit with Elder Mary Kershane, and I've interviewed her a few times over the past decade or so. She's a wonderful lady, a wonderful speaker. And I had originally said to her, I only need about 30, maybe 45 minutes of your time. And I have to tell you, we met at a park just off Headmaster and and Lajemodier, And it was two hours later where I thought, oh, my gosh, I really need to go because every moment of my time with her was learning. Thank you, dear creator, for giving me another day to walk your beautiful earth. She's grateful for the gift of time and the perspective 80 years can bring. You have to be thankful. But as Elder Mary Courchain patiently answers questions she's no doubt answered before, it's clear the real thanks lies in the very words she's able to speak. I'm so grateful to my dad who insisted that when I stepped in the house, there was no English. Powerful statement given the feelings Elder Mary once had for her own language. Anishinaabe Wawin. I became another person. She was just five years old when she was forced into the residential school system on Saking First Nation. Almost brings a lump to my throat. We returned there together in 2014. So the school would have been somewhere here? 
And then how far away was your house? See where the white, where that That's, white, yeah. the white house yeah. is? That's about the place where my house was. Home just meters from the school, but she was only allowed to go home on holidays. Interestingly, I never got to see the inside of my house until 10 long months later. And even yet though you we lived? lived it, it, even though we lived next door. She can still recall those first days, the fear and loneliness. But her clearest memory remains a day in the early 50s when she returned from her sixth year in residential school. And he says, Don, this is the question. My daughter's home. And when I heard those words, I looked at my dad's dark face. And I looked at my mom and she looked at me. And this rush of hatred almost came over me. I stood up to him and I was just, you know, proud that I could speak the English language. And I said, from now on, we'll speak English in this house. And my dad, my dad's jaw dropped and he sat back down and actual tears came to his eyes. And he looked at my mom and he said, then perhaps we never get to speak to this little girl again. He says, I don't know her. And I was 11 years old, going on 12. Already I had been indoctrinated. Already I was brainwashed to believe that who I was, was one to be looked down on and to be, you know. Did someone tell you that was the way to live? Yes. Yeah. Every day of my school life, every day of my school life, your ancestors are no good. They Elder Mary says that feeling lingered for decades, even after she married, even after she had kids. Why not bring them up? Maybe they could go to school like white kids and maybe that you know they wouldn't have that Indian accent and I don't want my younger ones. But in the 1970s she went back to school to university where a history professor directed her to a book on residential schools. We called it boarding school at the time. I said I want to talk about the boarding school and I want to talk about the nice time I had there. <laughs> so and he says do pick up this book there was a book I've read and read and read could not believe the things that were said in there there's savages and you know I was so angry I was just so angry learning then what many Canadians are still learning now the system was designed to remove indigenous children from their families and assimilate them we were always told that your only saving grace is following that way when Elder Mary graduated from university, she went on to teach, later becoming principal, then the first female dean of Aboriginal education at Red River College in Winnipeg. She also testified for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. They don't just need to know my story. They need to know everyone else's story. One of 6,500 witnesses. I forgot about me. So I'm here today on my healing journey again. Laying bare their pain. 
This next voice is residential school survivor Eugene Arcant, speaking after the TRC report was released in 2015. No one can say that you don't know about this anymore. Canada, this is your rite of passage. That was six years ago. Among the 94 calls to action released back then, number 80, the establishment of a national holiday to commemorate the horrors of the schools and help healing. But it wasn't until this year, until Kamloops, that call was put into action. It means that the world knows that Canada has a sordid past when it comes to the Indigenous peoples that were there. The past Elder Mary still struggles to reconcile with, not just how the residential school system made her feel, but how it still makes her feel. To this day, I feel lesser than. Really? Yes, absolutely. Why? It's difficult for me. I go into... What gives her confidence now is the life her family is building. My focus is on the, my little great-grandchildren who will grow up knowing, and not, and not just knowing, but uh, becoming knowledge keepers. Knowledge Working keepers. to better understand the past. We are just as good as the first man that stepped on this, on this land of ours. Uh, and, and with pride and gratefulness. Pindigan, come on in. Carrying her language into the future. So I have to tell you guys when we were in that interview and at the end she was just saying Pindigan, that that's a word so commonly used in her culture, come on in, and the welcoming tone that that sets. Uh, I'm very grateful to Elder Mary Crochet for taking the time to speak with me again this week and again wanted to share that gratefulness she shared off the top to her father and her parents for keeping her language alive at home. I mean, listen to how accomplished she is as a woman, all the things she's done and still struggles with her own sense of self and identity and confidence because of that system. And I'm very grateful that she has done all she's done for us and, and for Manitoba. Loren, this is not the first time you've met with Mary. You just said that. What, what an incredible gift she is and her willingness to share the story and the, the, where, the way she just brings you in. I understand completely why your 30 minutes turned into two hours. Well, talk about that connection that, that maybe you have now with Mary. Well, she talks a lot, I think, about how all the work she's done in the school system, right? I mean, she's an educator first and foremost, and she's still working with kids to go in and speak with them and try to make them see on that very basic level what it would be like to be five years old and taken from your home. And she has that ability, you know, the way she danced back and forth with her language and, and you could follow along and the, the, the cadence in her voice is just beautiful. It's like listening to music. And what stands out to me to this day is that, you know, I asked her, like, is there anger? And, and what about that apology from the Catholic and, and Anglican bishops? And where do you feel about all that? And she's extremely conflicted. You know, as, as at the top, she was giving thanks to the creator, but she says she also does the sign of the cross because she learned Catholicism in the school system. And she's got all these parts of her that are so nuanced, like all of us, right? And she's still struggling, too, to figure out how, how to reconcile everything. But I think if we just keep listening to people like her, man, we can only keep learning. Oh boy, you know, when you say that, and I know I've got to uh, get out here, but you say that, yes, so on one hand, her 
heritage, her family's culture was being destroyed, was being denied right. in the residential school. But that doesn't change the reality in which she lived in mm-hmm. and the things that she learned. So now, in retrospect, if I'm hearing you correctly and processing this right, Loren, now she's having to make a, a choice about almost throwing away other parts of her life, her lived life, uh, that 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 are possibly very dear to her because of what they're they're tied to. Well, what she's trying to do, and she's talked to, she had a couple stories, she shared a phone call she's made to the bishops and to the priests. I mean, she's a smart woman and uh, and asserting herself into the conversations to try to make them understand where she's coming from. So she's not walking away from anything. She just wants to make sure people are hearing her in all facets, right? Including the church system, which which took so much. That was a wonderful piece, Loren. Thank you very much for putting that together and bringing it to our attention so we can share it with our CJOB family on this National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, a special day, the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. For years, it was known as Orange Shirt Day. But going forward, September 30th will also be known, Loren, as the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. Such a significant day, and we're so pleased to know that for the next hour, with us will be community leader, Indigenous activist, Michael Redhead Champagne. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, uh, Tassa, everybody. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being so enthusiastic. I should tell you guys, I got a text from him a few minutes ago. I'm ready. I'm in the wings, he said. So ready to be with us for take some time. And... You you have an enthusiasm today, but I've just been curious, Michael, about the emotions of a day like today, you know, in terms of introspective or maybe frustration or anger. And, and as we reflect on the events of not just the past hundreds of years, but just this past year, the discovery of unmarked graves, a simple question, how are you doing this morning? How are you feeling? Um, I feel like uh, myself and many other people that are personally affected by Indian residential schools are going to be feeling all the feelings today. Um, We are pleased and happy to see so many non-Indigenous folks um, taking action and supporting Indigenous people and lifting us up. Um, But inevitably, this is also a day to remember a lot of the terrible things that have happened to Indigenous families, um, especially as it pertains to Indian residential school and systems of family separation. So there's an air of sadness um, for Indigenous folks that are personally affected today. And so some people, and I'm happy to see this, some people are choosing to spend the day um, relaxing or spending time with their family. And I think that's really beautiful to see Indigenous people you know, building those healthy relationships within their families. Um, And I'm also seeing uh, tons of non-Indigenous people saying, I'm going to take action in my workplace or in my family myself um, today on this day of National Truth and Reconciliation by either reading Indigenous books or checking out Indigenous film um, or pushing uh, pushing in some kind of a meaningful way on one of these TRC calls to action. And so I've been seeing a lot of really uh, hopeful things today. So how am I feeling? I'm excited. I'm anxious. I think I'm also a little bit nervous, right? Because I feel like everyone is paying attention to this topic of reconciliation and justice today. And I'm just, I really want to make sure that we can be as productive as possible with this moment. Well, Michael, I've known you going on a decade now. And the first time I met you, you were 24 and you were presenting at TEDx Manitoba. 
And you've said that you hope that the education and awareness this day should bring doesn't just rest on the shoulders of residential school survivors. And I'm going to read back to you words that you expressed back uh, TEDx Manitoba. I'm excited to speak because I want to bust stereotypes. And then you go on to say, when asked, what is your idea worth spreading? There is a common misconception in society that the dominant culture must, quote unquote, do something to the Aboriginal people and youth to, quote unquote, save them. This is a colonizer's attitude and it's accepted and perpetuated within the media, the education system, social work and the justice systems. So how do we get past that? You know, how do we become the listeners, the educated uh, non-Indigenous Canadians I'm speaking of, of course? I feel like we're really lucky in Canada. Um, we're really lucky in Canada that we have had such courageous survivors from Indian residential schools, from day schools, and from these many systems of family separation um, that have come forward and shared their stories. And out of their pain, out of the difficulties that they've had, these documents have been crafted. Documents like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action, the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls calls for justice, and so with these documents, it's, it's basically families and survivors pouring all of their pain into these, these testimonies and it's being transformed into recommendations, system-oriented recommendations that non-Indigenous people can take um, and run with. And so you don't need um, to necessarily ask Indigenous people hey, you know, can I move forward with this TRC call to action? It has been implied by us sharing our pain and our, our hurt uh, with these commissions that uh, we are asking Canadians, non-Indigenous people to help us move these calls for action and justice forward. Now, this day was born out of one of the 94 calls to action listed in the TRC report. And number one on the list was to work on reducing the disproportionate number of Indigenous kids in care. Manitoba has the worst record in the country on this. Have we made any progress? Well, um, it depends on progress and how you want to define progress. Um, the number of Indigenous kids in care um, is still proportionate. It's still the same. So approximately 90% of the kids in care are Indigenous in Manitoba. So the fact that the system is still disproportionately affecting Indigenous kids is still the same. The number has gone down, I believe, ever so slightly. Um, so I think we're like under 10,000 kids now, which is great. Um, but don't quote me on that. Um, and so the, the only thing that's frustrating about it, though, is Indigenous leaders were included in a Manitoba government child welfare legislative review committee. And I was one of them a number of years ago. And we crafted, uh, I don't know, close to 80 recommendations for the provincial government on how they could um, improve outcomes for children and youth and families. And unfortunately, many of those recommendations um, that were actually moved, you know, that review was put forward by this particular provincial government. Unfortunately, their own recommendations they're not listening to now. And so it's frustrating because we have, we have documents that exist. We have a lot of community leaders that have put in the work. We have the action plans in front of us. And the only thing that's missing right now is implementation. And I think that's where I'm... I'm, I'm here today to ask uh, my non-Indigenous relatives, we need your help with this implementation. And we have to, 
we have to find a way. I've been saying this stuff for for many years. Um, indigenous leaders in the in the community have been saying this stuff for many years. And as frustrating as it is, when our non-indigenous peers and colleagues say those same things, there are moments where it has more weight. And so I'm asking folks to be aware of their privilege. And if you can echo and amplify some of these calls to action or some of these suggestions, or heaven forbid, you take action yourself and take that leadership um, in response to some of these calls to action, then you will be directly uh, heeding those requests and the justice that is being called for in these uh, reports that came from such pain. We don't want another report to sit on the shelf. I mean, how frustrating is that, Michael, before we take a break, that the fact that you even have to point that out, the implementation, it, we keep missing it. Yes, it's, it is frustrating. And I think, you know, if uh, we can have a word of the day today, can the word of the day be implementation? Yeah. Because that's what we want to do, implement. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, for the rest of this hour, we are joined by Michael Redhead Champagne. He's a community activist and leader. And Michael, later today, there's going to be a healing walk, which will take place in a park just off of Main Street. But this isn't just any park. It's actually a reconciliation forest. And its creation came out of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report that said that more spaces needed to be created to honor residential school survivors. So we've got so many questions for this. Uh, I guess, why don't we start with what's the name of the park? Well, the name of the park itself is actually called the Healing Forest. Um, it has a spirit name. The spirit name is Kapabamayak Achak, and it means wandering spirit. And so basically um, what it is, it's in response to call to action number 82 that calls upon provincial and territorial governments in collaboration with survivors and their organizations and other parties to commission and install publicly accessible, highly visible residential school monuments in each capital city to honor survivors and the children who were lost uh, to their families and communities. So that's the call to action that the healing forest um, is responding to and it exists in uh, the corner of uh, St. John's Park nestled between um, the Anglican Cathedral, the Red River and the park itself is um, the healing forest which is a living classroom. Um, it's uh, wheelchair accessible, it uses natural environment uh, material from the environment and it has benches that are on purpose soft wood that um, they don't got no anti-homelessness stuff um, in the design. Um, yeah. It's really important to make sure that we acknowledge that um, when we talk about every child matters, a lot of folks are talking about the children that never made it home and rightfully so. But what we have to remember is that every child matters includes those children that did make it home and today are struggling with harmful substance use, with homelessness, with those types of difficulties. And in that, in acknowledging that reality, we made sure that the benches that we put there um, in that inner circle of the healing forest are made out of softwood that people could sleep on if they need to, because we want to have that respect for our relatives that went to residential school and the children that did make it home. Because the children that made it home a lot of people call them homeless today. A lot of people call them addicted today. But if every child matters, those folks matter, and we got to do good by them too. You know, and uh, I just, 
in a, in the genuine conversation there, I had a little bit of a chuckle there, Michael, and forgive me if that uh, was disrespectful, but that's not the way I meant it. It's just because you see this everywhere, this design that that's one of the primary focuses is that uh, we like you to come down and see this and experience certain things, but uh, only for a certain amount of time and then if you're a certain type of person. Yes, yes. And so um, the, the idea of the healing forest is that um, all of those like trees that got planted there are in honor of those children. And it's on purpose, wheelchair accessible. And the whole idea of the medicine wheel is welcoming all nations um, into the circle, right? It's in the shape of a circle. It's got, um, you know, different shapes coming together. And the whole, you know, many of the teachings behind that is about welcoming people that are different than you into your space um, in a good way in a kind way, mm-hmm. not in a way that, you know, forces you to be like me or forces me to be like you, but acknowledging that um, we live in the same world together and how I'm treated affects you and likewise. I think one of the words, we spoke to Elder Mary Kershane, a residential school survivor at 8.30, Michael, and I think the word was Pindigan, come on in, and the welcoming mm. aspect of that and what that means. And so I'm curious, what does this park mean to you, this reconciliation forest? To me, what this forest represents is a reimagining of what education could be. We all know that Indian residential schools claimed to be education for the Indigenous students that attended there. And we know the unimaginable horrors and damage that has happened as a result. Um, And so for me, when I see beautiful, natural, outdoor spaces like the Healing Forest that are so intentional with their design in making sure that they are a safe space for learning, connected to the natural environment and being as respectful as possible to the current realities of Indian residential school survivors, then I think that's doing a pretty good job of uh, representing that teaching that um, Mary talked about, and that would be um, Vindigan, that welcome, come in. It's beautiful. Mackling McGarry, McNabb, and a fourth M with us this morning. Michael. Michael Redhead Champagne has been with us since 9 a.m. on this National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. And Michael, who are you thinking of today? Do you have anybody specific in mind? Do we have Michael, Mr. Forte? I just spoke with him. Uh-oh. Oh, sorry. I oh, muted myself. Oh. <laughs> I was talking to you guys, and it was I was on mute. Okay. The, 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 COVID, the COVID line of uh, the pandemic. <laughs> I was on mute. <laughs> um, but to answer the question, um, I've been thinking a lot about uh, Indian residential school survivors, and specifically, I've been thinking a lot about my mom my birth mother actually this past summer, uh, my birth mom who attended Indian residential schools passed away. And uh, I'm thinking a lot about her today because I feel like, um, like a lot of Indian residential school survivors, she had a a tough go of things when she came home. You know, she had to struggle with a lot of that trauma and, and coping with that trauma in a world that didn't really understand. And so, you know, I'm, I think about how can I best, I don't want to say the word avenge, but how can I best honor her, the pain that she went through? And I think that the best way that I can do that is by learning my language, being a good relative, 
and try to be, you know, trying to learn my, my culture and my identity and who I am. And so all those things they tried to take away during residential schools, I want to reclaim every single thing. And so that's why I'm growing my hair long. That's why I want to learn how to speak Cree. Well, that's been... what I'm thinking about. Well, thank you for sharing that, Michael, and thank you for joining us this hour. This has been wonderful. Um, and as we make our way through our first ever National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, we want to introduce you to somebody who is making his way across Western Canada from east to west before he makes a U-turn, Greg, and heads east all the way to Ottawa. That's right. Last week I received an email from listener Candice, and Candace thought we should know about something called the Ride to Reconciliation. After reading her entire email, there was no mistaking it, Loren. Uh, yes, we should. And our listeners need to know about this. Yeah, she wrote about her son, Liam, said he began a ride to reconciliation on the first day of school, September 7th. He is riding his bike to residential school sites where... To date, unmarked graves have been discovered. He's doing this in order to maintain and continue ongoing awareness. As a Métis educator, he's interested in rethinking how we currently teach residential school system. The goal was for Liam to be in Kamloops by today, and so we say good morning to Liam Aim. Hi, Liam. Where do we find you? Uh, today you find me in Kamloops. So I am staring out at the river in Kamloops. I'm about a few kilometers away from the Kamloops, uh, the band where I will be spending the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. Go ahead, Michael, if you have a question. Thank you so much uh, for what you're doing there, Liam. Um, you yourself um, are an educator. What do you hope Canadians learn from your journey to, journey here? Um, I just hope that it's a continued discourse and we don't save these conversations for July 1st or for September 30th and that we integrate Indigenous issues and an Indigenous education within every single day and every single classroom. And I hope that we find a place for these issues and these conversations and, and kind of every section of schooling. And we don't just save them for these certain days. Is there any particular significance to the, the way that you've mapped out your journey to head first to BC before uh, turning back towards Ottawa? Um, well, originally my plan was to visit the eight schools where they found unmarked graves and go from east to west and then finish at Ottawa. But about two weeks in, um, I was having conversations with my mother and we kind of decided that September 30th was going to be a big day. So we decided to kind of rush for Kamloops and then from Kamloops, we're going to be going to the island and then Cranbrook and then up to the Northwest Territories to visit the school in Fort Providence and then head back east. Michael, do you have so a with some, Yeah, I was thinking um, it's great that uh, as we are doing this, it seems like it's generating a lot of conversation, a lot of discussion. I know you have a GoFundMe out there that folks can donate to. Um, what actions are you hoping to see? If, if a non-Indigenous person is listening right now, and I think we got a few, um, what do you want them to actually do? Oh, I mean, the first thing... I'd say the easiest thing is to acknowledge the land that you're standing on, acknowledge that it's stolen land. And then as we move from acknowledgement, I really, I really ask uh, non-Indigenous people to critically assess maybe the systems that they work in and mm. to look and see, are they promoting equity within maybe your workplace or in your community? And then if they're not, try and find a way to take some action where an Indigenous person can have an equitable outcome within your community or within your working space. 
And I know that's a very loaded thing to do, but if we start with the acknowledgement and then we look for places where we can improve equity in our workplace, in our community, I feel like we can move into just sovereignty a step forward. Liam, being Métis person, is that something you, you've always declared? Is that something you've always been comfortable in declaring? And, and if not, has there been a shift? And when did that shift take place for you? Um, for me personally, I didn't even find out about my status probably until high school. I would say it was my grandfather. My grandfather is the Métis one in my family, and he did not even declare his status until he was probably 50 or 60 years old for him. He grew up kind of with the idea that if you are Métis, you are supposed to hide that. You're supposed to be ashamed of who you are. So it wasn't until later in his life where he really decided he was going to take ownership of his identity and get his status card and really reclaim his Métis status. And as that time where he was doing that, I would say my mother claimed her status and then I slowly came along after that. So it's not something that I've been born with and or not it's not a status I was aware with at birth Mm -hmm. and it's not something that I was really aware of or really proud of until later on in my life how much of this is for your grandfather then Liam I would say a lot so um yeah Liam Liam, how important sorry I apologize uh how important is how important is um, sharing this journey with your mom? I know she's been one of the big supporters uh, of you on this journey. And what is that? What relationship does family have to your ride for reconciliation here? Um, I would say it's everything. I would say if it wasn't for my family, I wouldn't have the power or the privilege to be able to do this. I'm in a very fortunate position where I can take this time off of my regular day life and go on a ride and try and advocate for other people. And if it wasn't for my parents were raising me to be a strong, resilient person or to show me to care for other people, then this ride would not be possible. So they, they, they are probably a key driving force to why I'm able to do this and why I'm able to get up every day and cycle those kilometers. If I can ask you just a question about those kilometers, Liam, it's kind of twofold. One, how many kilometers have you had to get in per day to get to Kamloops for the 30th? Um. Well, that's kind of a loaded question. It's been, <laughs> it's been kind of a, it's been definitely a tough journey. I would say, I like to average over a hundred a day, but mm. I would say from Winnipeg to Regina is probably the worst, worst cycling I've ever done in my life because it is just windy and <laughs> I see why why everyone starts out west and heads east because you know a tailwind's a lot better than a headwind. But um, I would say once I got past Regina, I was averaging. I would say probably 120 to 160 kilometers a day to to get the Cowboys for the 30th. And that's that's another reason why I really had no timelines in my events because I wanted it to be organic both in whatever kind of the land was giving me in terms of how many kilometers I could cycle or whatever experiences I was experiencing on the way. I didn't want to I didn't want to force anything, but I felt like this was a significant point in my journey and so I I tried to up, up the kilometers so I could get here for the 30th. So that's just one last question here. Apologies. That's the physical side of things. Emotionally, I'm just curious. Now you're in Kamloops, and this is sort of been the impetus that really, I think, pushed the federal government to create this day. They were asked to do it years ago, and now finally we have it. Just how are you feeling today? It's kind of the same question we asked you, Michael, but I wanted to pose it to Liam. Um, I would say it's definitely... Uh 
I would say it's definitely a loaded feeling emotions. I feel like today I'm excited to be here and spend it with the band into Kamloops. And I feel like it's going to be a great day to kind of celebrate their culture and their people and their resilience. But it's also a very sovereign day. And the fact that 215 kids were unjustly murdered at the site. So I would say as the day goes on, I think it's going to unfold in a, in a various of emotions and experiences. So I don't know. It's kind of, I kind of relating this culture to like Remembrance Day. And it's based on your experiences and your connection to different communities and will kind of determine how this day unfolds in terms of emotion. Michael, before we say goodbye to Liam, do you have any final questions or thoughts? I think my final thoughts here for you, Liam, is just if you could, if you could speak to the young Indigenous people that are feeling tired and sometimes are feeling sad from all of the things that are happening in reconciliation land out there, what's your message to those young First Nation, Métis and Inuit kids that are watching you? I would say to stand up and stay strong. Use your voice, use your power, and really hold on to whatever traditions, whatever language you have. So spend as much time as you can with your elders and your knowledge keepers and keep on pushing forward. You know, it's been a long journey. It's been a long battle, but, you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel. So stand up, use your voice, use your power, and really try and create change within your community. Liam Haim joining us live on 680 CJOB from British Columbia. He's in Kamloops uh, getting ready for his journey back to Ottawa before returning to Winnipeg. Liam, thank you very much for joining us today. We appreciate the time, sir. Oh, my pleasure. Have a great day. And GMAC, there's a GoFundMe as well for the Ride for Reconciliation. I'm on it right now, and uh, Liam has a goal of $100,000. He would love it if you go to GoFundMe.com, and then you can search for Ride for Reconciliation. It's a tremendous, a tremendous thing that he's doing here. And those two words that jumped out at the end have me uh, a little bit overwhelmed. Elders and knowledge keepers. Boy, oh boy, those are uh, wonderful words in any language. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.